Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're going to continue the seed discussion, but instead of looking purely at gymnosperms, we're looking at fossil evidence of what could very well be transitional fossils between gymnosperms and angiosperms. Joining us to talk about this is Sir Peter Crane of the Oak Spring Garden Foundation. Peter is a paleobotanist who, alongside a team of really talented scientists, took an in-depth look at a series of plant fossils that have really important implications for the origin of angiosperms. Now, of course, you will always hear the evolution of flowering plants referred to as Darwin's abominable mystery, and indeed there is a lot of confusion and mystery surrounding this process. Although they dominate the landscape today, that hasn't always been the case. But you don't just get an angiosperm overnight. There had to be some transitional phases in that evolution. And that's exactly what they are arguing these fossils represent. Moreover, these fossil descriptions really forces us to not only go looking in new locations for new fossil evidence, but also examine previous fossils in a whole new light. I don't want to steal any more of his thunder, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Sir Peter Crane. I hope you enjoy. All right, Sir Peter Crane, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Uh, how about we start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Great. Thanks so much, Matt. Yeah, I'm president of the Oak Spring Garden Foundation here in uh, Upperville, Virginia. And uh, I had a kind of long career in, <laughs> in, in botany one way or another, um, <laughs> starting in the UK and uh, uh, spending time here in the US and then um, at the Field Museum for many years. Uh, and then running Royal Botanic Gardens Kew in London uh, before coming back to the U.S. and uh, ending up here at Oak Spring in uh, five years ago. That's wonderful. And it's a beautiful place uh, for anyone that's never heard of it. I will have all the links available for people. But yeah, it's really awesome to see you've been at some of my favorite botanical institutions or at least scientific institutions. I realize the Field Museum does much more than botany, <laughs> but you yourself uh, are a paleobotanist. And where did that all begin? I mean, were you into fossils as a child or did you just kind of discover your path along the way through botany and then decided to look towards the past to kind of understand where diversity is today botanically? Yeah, so I've, uh, I I did grow up with an interest in fossils. I also had a, a, a real interest in archaeology, actually, mm -hmm. as a teenager in high school. And I was interested in how archaeologists were able to construct past environments, mainly through uh, pollen analysis, oh, wow. uh, but also analysis of other plant remains. And then that kind of led me uh, to go a little deeper uh, <laughs> in time uh, with, a, with an evolutionary uh, perspective rather than necessarily a more ecological perspective. And so when I was looking at college, I chose Reading University because they had a long uh, tradition in paleobotany. And that was one of the things that I, that I wanted to study. 
Excellent. And of course, as many have heard on the past, there's a lot of different routes you can go in paleobotany. Where did you start to kind of find your niche within that realm? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, I was uh, fortunate that when time came to do my PhD, uh, for some reason, I, I wanted to kind of focus on angiosperms. Actually, I was very inspired by uh, a couple of books that came out in 1976. Norman Hughes, who was the paleobotanist at, at Cambridge, brought out a book on angiosperm origins from a very kind of geological uh, mm. perspective. And it was kind of an optimistic perspective. It was <laughs> what, what it was saying, you know, you could learn a lot about angiosperm evolution from studying uh, the fossil record. Um, although uh, he didn't really have much time for living plants. It was oh. very much a geological uh, perspective. And at the same time, Charlie Beck brought out a book on... Um, early angiosperm evolution. And that contained uh, this uh, one of the two key papers by Jim Doyle and Leo Hickey on the angiosperm record from the Potomac group, which was a kind of coordinated record of pollen and leaves through mm. the, the mid-Cretaceous. So those two things were very inspiring. So I, I actually wanted to um, focus kind of on angiosperm evolution, but uh, so in, in looking for material that I could work on for my thesis, I actually fastened on some new material from from southern England, being local, uh, that, that I could collect reasonably easily, uh, much younger than the uh, material that Hughes and Doyle and Hickey was, were studying, from the uh, late Paleocene of, of southern Britain. Okay. And I worked on uh, that fossil material for, for my thesis. And it, it, was, uh, it was great to kind of cut my teeth on something that was old enough to still be interesting <laughs> and not quite the same as, as the living groups, um, but also not so different that there was no reason to compare them in detail with living plants. So we were, I worked on uh, fossils related to, to modern Katsura, oh, film, and also fossils related to modern um, hazels and hornbeams oh, and hop awesome. hornbeams. So, so things again you could be familiar with, but sort of trace back a little bit. And they were a little bit, little bit different. You know, had a mix of features that you would see today in modern hazels and uh, modern hornbeams mm. and the Cercidophyllum store is not quite like modern Katsura. <laughs> yeah, so it was a, it was an interesting way to kind of get started in, in angiosperm paleobotany. Yeah, because it's I can see the sort of jumping off point is is you have modern examples to look at and pull from. I mean, we can go outside today and dissect these things mm -hmm. and see all those features, but then to go back far enough to know that these, these changes were occurring, but still kind of grounding you in something that you can, again, compare to. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, uh, the further you go back in time with studying um, plant fossils, for many people, then it's easy to just look at the fossils and not pay attention to their <laughs> living relatives because they don't really have many close living relatives, right. which in a way I think is a shame because there are always living relatives to, that, are, <laughs> that are relevant. But in, in angiosperms, you see that come into sharp focus. You really can't study angiosperm fossils without thinking about living plants. In fact, I would argue you can't really study any fossils without thinking about their equivalent uh, living organisms. I certainly agree. And what I love about paleobotanists and, and really, really respect about the field in general is that idea that not only do you have to be a good geologist and a good paleontologist to understand the rock record and where you need to go looking, but the familiarity you need to have with modern day features across a wide spectrum, because, you know, convergent evolution and being what it is, there's a lot of different ways to come to flowering plants as we see today. So this, this familiarity with both living and extinct floras just 
it adds so much more of a rich perspective on really the origin story of life and, and how things have come to be what they are today. I mean, arguably, we wouldn't be here without flowering plants. So, Right. I think it's also, uh, you know, it's, it's great fun. I mean, if you're a specialist in some group of living plants, often you, you're very focused on that group, mm. which is legumes or or asteraceae or, or whatever. <laughs> As a paleobotanist, you have to deal with the fossil, whatever the fossil record deals deals <laughs> you. You know, it might be might be Katsura one day, it might be Betulaceae another day, it might be Magnoliaceae another day. You know, so uh, the fun of that is is dealing with a wide range of, of of living plants. Certainly, and you know, having followed your career for some time now you weren't settling in just this Paleocene sort of environment. You've pushed it back to sort of what we would consider early angiosperm days, at least trying to find those moments where, you know, these features were really starting to come on board, which has led to some really fruitful discoveries in terms of, you know, these charcoalized flowers. And But one of the things that always strikes me in reading your work and work of your colleagues at that time period is you're like, well, here they are, these crown groups, things we could, you know, roughly place into orders or even families at times. And this is what everyone kind of refers to when you see these pop science features of uh, Darwin's abominable mystery. There's suddenly angiosperms appear and they become what they are today. And to push that envelope a little bit further is really, you, you, you get the sense it's been difficult, but there are hints and pieces of these puzzles that are really tantalizing to start looking at where, you know, these familiar features of what we consider an angiosperm flower first started to originate and how they evolved once they came onto the scene, which kind of seems pretty rapid at times. Yeah, I think um, if you look at just a, a piece of the evidence, then you you might uh, assume that the things in the mid-Cretaceous are very similar to to living living groups. When you look in more detail, you find that there are differences there. Some, some of these plants from, let's say, 100 million years ago will fit into the crown group of a, of a living family, for example. Um, but sometimes you're not quite sure whether they're in the <laughs> crown group or in the stem group. And often you find that they're, they're perhaps more likely to be in the stem group of an order. And then you can't mm. quite decide to which order they belong. So when you start looking in detail, you find that they do have unusual combinations of characters and that they don't fit quite so easily. And uh, some do, no doubt about it, uh, but a lot don't. And so the picture is more complicated. The picture really that emerges from studying the kind of earliest angiosperm record is that you have a lot of diversity there, some of which is pretty easier to relate to modern groups and some of which is not so easy to relate to modern groups. I mean, in the, in broad sense, we know roughly where they fit in the <laughs> angiosperm picture, but we don't know with any precision. And of course, even if we have the flower, we would also love to know what its leaves was like. We'd love to know what kind of a plant it was, whether whether it was a small herb or whether it was a large tree. And so, and the more you know, then the more you encounter these different combinations of characters. Mm. So it's it does become uh, a little tricky. I mean, I think the huge resurgence in studying angiosperm fossils has been, you know, greatly accelerated by the opportunity to study f fossil flowers, right? which really... Um, uh, my colleague Elsa Marie Fries pioneered, and I've been lucky enough to be involved in a, in a lot of that work and, and uh, done quite a bit of it myself. Uh, so we do have a pretty rich angiosperm fossil record now from the late Cretaceous, from between, let's say, about, about 125 million years ago through up into the early part of the Cenozoic. We get wow. an increasingly, increasingly rich record, and there's much more uh, to be studied. 
Um, and we're still working on some of these earliest angiosperms, but we've also made the transition to looking at some of the fossil gymnosperm groups, coming back to a question that I was interested in back in the <laughs> mid-80s, oh. which is um, which groups of living seed plants and which groups of fossil seed plants are related to each other, what's their kind of phylogenetic pattern, and uh, which is the m group most closely related to flowering plants, That's which is the way I think about solving the origin of flowering plants <laughs> is to simply answer that question, which is the fossil group most closely related to flowering plants. Right, because this is, you know, again, the way it's reported is not necessarily at all reflective of, like you said, the nuances and the discussions going on behind the scenes with the scientists doing the work, right? You can only report on little bits and pieces at a time. And thinking of the way evolution works, it is really cool to look at someone that's saying, okay, we know there's flowers here, but let's look at what was going on just before that or leading up to this point, because it's not like one night uh, a seed germinated and boom, it had a flower on it. You would expect some transitional phases and some experimentation, so to speak, in quotes, to be happening. And, you know, again, the cursory research that I do, there's a lot of hypotheses about which group of seed plants became, you know, the, the closest living ancestors. But it, it started with gymnosperms at some point and then became this thing that we understand as a flower. And that's an exciting phase to be looking at because as much as they like to say this, you'll never find the first flower. It's not going to be this de novo thing that also luckily fossilized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, the question really does boil down to understanding which of these fossil groups is most closely related to flowering plants. And it's going to it's going to be a fossil group. We only have five living <laughs> groups of seed plants uh, today. So we can attack that problem with, with uh, molecular biology. And the, the answer... Uh, based on the analyses that have been done with increasing amounts of molecular data, are uh, that the the four groups of living seed plants are more closely related to each other than any of them is to angiosperms. In other words, angiosperms are the sister group mm. to the rest of the living seed plants. So then the question is, where do all the fossils fit in? And how do these various fossil groups relate to Nitales or conifers or ginkgo and angiosperms and cycads. So um, you know that's the that's the kind of central problem for understanding the origin of angiosperms is can we figure out those relationships? And that's going to have to be done with morphology and anatomy because you can't get the molecules from mm -hmm. the fossils. So it's going to have to be done with with morphology and anatomy, and that means that you really need to understand the homologies of the reproductive structures. How do you compare the reproductive structure of a conifer or a Nitalian with the reproductive structures that we know from the fossil record and how do they all compare to the reproductive structures of flowering plants, the individual pieces that make up the flower? Right. And that's what's really exciting about why we've really sat down to talk today is this anatomical approach, which is informed by the molecular approach, not to say that these are operating in separate fields. They really do inform one another. But again, the fossil evidence is purely based in anatomical features. And what you and your colleagues have recently published uh, in Nature, which is extremely exciting, is really based in this sort of anatomical approach to looking at what are these structures, how do they form, and where do we start to see those origins that are comparable, but also unique or going upon these unique trajectories. And you and your colleagues have recently looked at a fossil of 
a species that's been known, right, uh, to, for some time, or at least these fossils are not, it wasn't the first time this has been on Earth and examined, but you've taken a very new and very detailed approach to trying to understand what these features truly are and what they mean for the evolutionary trajectory that was set forth during that time period. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, in paleontology, you, you need a little bit of uh, luck. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. fortune favors the prepared mind. But on the other hand, <laughs> uh, you do need a, to find good material to, to work with. And that, I think, is the key to have well-preserved material. Uh, without that, it's very hard to make uh, any real progress. We, we started uh, our program uh, actually in Mongolia, working with a team of Mongolian and Japanese and U.S. scientists, looking in early Cretaceous rocks with the perspective that we might find early angiosperms. <laughs> uh, we didn't find any. What we found instead in a coal mine south of Ulaanbaatar in, in Mongolia was a beautifully preserved early Cretaceous swamp flora. Ooh. And um, it has many interesting plants in some of which look like modern conifers, spruces and pines and things like this, <laughs> uh, but others of which were clearly extinct plants. And we've described several of those. Uh, among them were tiny little structures that we could isolate from the lignite that were uh, seed-bearing cupules. And... Um, uh, actually, at this one mine, we found three different kinds of these oh. uh, seed-bearing seed cupules, and they were all constructed on basically the same plan of axes in the axle of a bract bearing uh, cupules of various kinds. One variety, the axis branched into two, and then there was a cupule on the end of each axis, and <laughs> each cupule had one seed inside. In another variant, uh, the axis was actually flattened and three-lobed, hmm. And there was a cupule on each of the three lobes, and each cupule had one seed inside. And so that got us really thinking about these plants, how they could be compared with other plants that have been described in the fossil record. And they were similar, actually, to a, a very interesting fossil called doilia that uh, Ruth Stocky and Gar Rothwell had described from roughly similar age deposits from uh, British Columbia. And they were also similar in the way they were constructed to much older plants called charistosperms okay. that had been described from mainly from the southern uh, hemisphere. So we became more interested in these, and then the question arose, you know, could they also be compared to a, a kind of classic plant called catonia that had been known since the 1920s, uh, first described hmm. in, in Britain, which also has uh, these kinds of uh, cupules. So our work uh, was really to kind of bring all of this uh, information together. We were thinking about this. And um, we extended our field work with uh, Chinese colleagues, particularly uh, Gongul Shi from uh, the Nanjing Institute of Geology and Paleontology. And um, we started looking for similar material in Inner Mongolia, in okay. China. And uh, we were lucky enough to find uh, a deposit where similar kinds of fossils were preserved not as lignite, but as permineralized fossils, where the plant material had been impregnated with silica, uh -huh. which allowed us to study the anatomy in addition to the morphology, whereas in the Mongolian material, we had beautiful morphology, but no real uh, anatomy. 
So the discovery from Inner Mongolia gave us the chance to look at the anatomy of these seed-bearing structures and compare those with the anatomy of other seed-bearing structures hmm. that have been preserved and described from, from elsewhere to really draw together a kind of comprehensive overview of how all of these different copule types <laughs> from the Triassic and the Jurassic and the early Cretaceous that have been described, could they all be the same, fundamentally the same? Or were, as some people have thought, uh, are some of them really uh, fundamentally different from each other? And, and our conclusion after having studied this material is the simple one that they're all fundamentally the same. Wow. And if that's true, then it, it kind of starts to pull together some of the strands of what look like very separate groups of seed plants, starting to pull them together into a group. And... Uh, in that group of seed plants with these recurved uh, cupules, uh, you also have the possibility to compare them with the ovules of angiosperms, uh, which is the kind of real uh, interest in this work, not original with us, uh, an idea that's been around for a long time, sure. um, but made it important to really understand what's going on with these cupules. Right. But I mean, here's the scientific process where these have been known for some time. Different people are looking at them, describing different features. But then, like you said, pulling these threads together, building off where others have left off and, and taking that next step with it. And what really excites me, again, is this anatomical approach, especially fine details in the anatomy, having seen some of the cross sections. I mean, it's phenomenal, A, the preservation of this, but then what you're able to decipher. And I always read these sorts of papers and I chuckle to myself because I've taught enough plant identification courses at this point for the students to go like, why do these minute details matter? <laughs> well, here's why they matter, because these are developmental pathways that can either be shared or convergent or something completely separate. And that's how you start to tease apart these different lines of evidence that, okay, are we looking at similar shared structures here? Are we finding lineages, perhaps, that are leading down pathways towards the development of, you know, eventually a carpal or a fruit-like structure? And that is what is so cool about reading this work is the amount of analysis that went into it to just see where these different tissues are going. And what blew my mind most of all is when you're looking at what you have found and, and, and so wonderfully preserved but then analyzed, is it kind of looks a lot like the anatomy of when you cross-section, say, a lily flower and look at the ovules within the carpal. Obviously, we're not at carpals yet, but the ovules in there. And that, to me, is just so mind-blowing that you're looking at something that's around 125 million years of age, but here's the start of something that you could recognize potentially today. Uh, but then being able to trace, okay, here's a bract, here's the axis, here's where the cupule comes in. It's just phenomenal, both the analysis and the detail of what you were able to find. Yeah, I think the... Um you know, this idea that uh, the copule might have something to do with the outer integument of an angiosperm ovule is, is, has been around uh, for a while. But as new copules have been described over the last uh, 10 or 20 years, it's really got us thinking about exactly how all of these things uh, should be compared. In a, in a normal Seed plant ovule, you usually only have one integument. Okay. Uh, but in angiosperms, you have not only the carpal, which has to be explained, but you have this second mm -hmm. integument too that you need to explain. And probably the origin of the second integument came before the origin of the carpal mm. because it is enclosed within the carpal. So trying to understand how you compare that second integument with structures in other seed plants is absolutely critical to understanding where angiosperms how they could potentially be related to, 
to uh, other seed plants. So this idea that the recurved copule is actually similar to the outer integument is also bolstered by the idea that the second integument is integral to giving you that curved form mm. that you see in angiosperms. Uh, there's genetic evidence that, that where you upset the second integument, <laughs> you get a, an ovule that doesn't have that wow. curved form. So it all fits together, I think, pretty neatly. But as with any uh, scientific hypothesis, there are always more questions to <laughs> be answered. Darn it. <laughs> and, you know, one of the key ones is comes back to this plant, Catonia, which has been at the center of these uh, controversies for, since the 1920s. We know that Catonia's seed-bearing st structures are, are a kind of flattened axis with, with many copules, and uh, each copule contains many uh, seeds, but mm. we don't know how that Catonia structure was attached to the plant. Ah, it would be really nice if we could show that it was in the axle of a bract, which yeah. I think would be the kind of confirmatory evidence that we would need for the hypothesis that we've offered. But so far, there's no evidence of mm. how, how uh, Catonia was attached uh, to the plant. Our hypothesis would be that it's uh, simply a proliferated axis. So whereas the copules in Inner Mongolia have one axis unbranched with one copule containing two seeds... And the forms from Mongolia are one axis forked, each fork containing a copule with one seed in each copule. And Catonia now is, is a branched axis with many copules, oh. not just two, not just three, as we see in some of the Mongolian material, but with a whole bunch of them. And instead of having one seed in each copule or two seeds in each copule, it's got like 12 seeds in a copule, <laughs> 20 seeds in a copule. Uh, so we would love to know more about how Catonia uh, was born, and similarly with with these uh, with with other plants from from earlier in the Mesozoic. But I think uh, the hypothesis that we've presented is actually the simplest hypothesis, <laughs> which is that they're all basically the same. And uh, there's so many reasons that's exciting that we'll we'll gradually unpack here. But I mean, just again thinking about having to study this in detail and and the the vagaries of the fossil record being that they're often disarticulated bits and pieces you're lucky to have found what you did find and be able to analyze yeah. it like that but a lot of this I, I noticed comes from just following vascular tissues and seeing what is associated with what because again you can't like take an arabidopsis through time develop a clone and just cut the clone up at different developmental stages and look at how that is developing. You have to trace sort of the tissues, where they're going, what they're associated with. And that's kind of how you're resolving this importance of, you know, you say integument to the an average person on the street and they go, huh? But, uh, you know, knowing where it's originated in that cupule could actually be where that second integument began. That's incredibly important, as you just outlined. But that's where this fine detail really allows you to start making those leaps uh, and, and feeling pretty confident about that decision. Yeah, I think um, there's no doubt that having the anatomy preserved and being able to trace in detail the anatomy, uh, particularly of the vascular tissues mm -hmm. and how the copules supply, is a very important piece of the information. And um, also the fact that we have lots of material. I mean, we have hundreds of copules, oh, not wow. just one or two. Okay. Uh, so we were able to look at a lot of copules and really kind of figure it out. And we were able to compare it with at least what's been described. And we also went back to look at uh, some of the previously described material, uh, none of which is uh, as beautifully preserved or as abundant. <laughs> uh, but 
uh, we did the best we could with it. Uh, and that vascular anatomy was very important because some of the arguments that have been advanced to suggest that there are several different kinds of cupules mm. have come back to this issue of the, the vasculature and the way that, uh, and what they tell you about the true nature of the, of the organ. But figuring out how the, all of these different structures are to be compared is vital because unless you understand the homologies as you put together your data matrix for your phylogenetic analysis, <laughs> you're really putting together a matrix where apples and oranges and pears are all being uh, compared, hmm. but not in a kind of a consistent or evolutionarily sensible way. So you know, when, when you, we look at the evolution of vertebrates, we know that people are very concerned about the homologies of the various bones and their relation to each other. That's critically important. It's a little harder in plants because of the way that they're constructed, but we, we have to understand at a deep level how these various structures should be compared. Otherwise, our hypotheses are, are really fragile because <laughs> yeah. we... We, we don't have a deep enough understanding of how these structures relate to each other in an evolutionary right. sense. And as you mentioned, finding the simplest solution to do that makes more sense because you're not trying to make these leaps and bounds to connect, say, apples and oranges and pears. But what's cool is that the, the major, one of the bigger takeaways from this paper is that you have found that there are these massive homologies between these, I mean, I'm guessing unrelated structures in a bigger context, or, but still through the pathways of development, you're finding similar threads. And what you've uncovered, or at least one of the conclusions, is that a lot of this diversity has been hiding in plain sight just because of the lack of interpretation and comparison all this time. And so now, you know, you haven't found the first angiosperm or anything like that, but you have unlocked this door to how can we go back and look at this in more detail? Where can we go looking for more potentially attached or articulated structures that can help us really start to unlock this and, and potentially go farther back in time with the early days of this sort of developmental trajectory that was going on with these plants? Yeah, I think um, you know, one, one test of, of these ideas will be how satisfactory they are for explaining other enigmatic <laughs> fossils that we have uh, in the record. And I think we already have uh, some indications that these ideas can be extended to other things that are described in the record that we didn't include mm. uh, uh, in the paper, because as one starts to look at them, you realize that they can be interpreted in exactly the same wow. uh, way. So I think slowly we will start to understand across a great range of fossils, all preserved in different ways with different problems of interpretation, how they can be compared with each other. And um, that's really all made possible by uh, some really well-preserved fossils <laughs> that kind of enable you to understand the situation in the first place. And then with that information in your mind, you can look at a broader range of things and say, okay, I can see how this all this might start to fit together. You know, um, one of my favorite uh, quotes is from a paleobotanist Lang back in uh, actually before the second before the first world war oh, I wow. think, where he said um, the phylogenetic tree is less like a tree and more like a bundle of sticks <laughs> and uh, and that is true mm. uh, you know we've got all of these fossil groups that they can't all be isolated groups they have to fit together in some way and we have to understand how they fit together and the only way we're going to do that is to figure out how to compare 
in an evolutionary sensible way these different structures in these different plants. So we're starting now to build those isolated sticks into <laughs> the beginnings of a coherent tree. We're very far from having the whole oh, certainly. picture. Uh, but I think over the last couple of decades, we've made a few important steps towards clarifying some pieces of the tree. Mm. And I think this paper in Nature takes another a helpful step along that trajectory of making sense <laughs> of a whole bunch of what would otherwise be considered very disparate plants. Certainly. And this is a really amazing demonstration of how the scientific process really does work. It's not these massive like eureka moments, but it is a new way of looking at things. It jogs other people to or at least encourages other people to take new looks at often older things, which again, shout out to museum collections, because who knows what can be reinterpreted at this point or reanalyzed to continue this process. Absolutely. Uh, I think, um, yeah, as I said a moment ago, I think there are a lot of fossils now that should be looked at again. Yeah in light of this hypothesis. And maybe the, maybe they'll come up with a, a counter hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Very interesting to see. From what I've seen so far, there's a, there's a lot that will fit into this model. Sure. And uh, I think we have the potential uh, now to, to look at a number of other plants in the fossil record if, if we can get suitably preserved material and really understand how they fit into this emerging picture that's sort of slowly crystallizing <laughs> out of... Uh, you know, what was previously a kind of pretty amorphous right. mass. And the other cool thing about this paper is you do take a stab at, you know, these, these early days of taking that bundle of sticks and making something make sense out of it. And what kind of struck me is this word angiophyte keeps coming up. And that's something new to me. It's not the realm I'm in very often. The literature, it's kind of new. But, you know, I'm looking at this fossil. I'm looking at the reconstructions and, and some of the CT scanning that was done. That's just absolutely phenomenal in terms of the detail you're able to see. And here's a plant with two integuments. So not quite what I understand as a gymnosperm, but it also, you know, the recurve cupules tips has a micropile. So it is a naked seed in there. And so it, it really kind of challenges my own assumptions of this sort of one day you had a gymnosperm, the next day you had an angiosperm, but this gradual sort of, there had to have been sort of an in-between phase. Sure. And this is what we find in the fossil record. Just to go back to my earlier work on, on the Betulaceae, right? Mm. So in my thesis, I find these little fruits and they, uh, they look like the fruits of modern hornbeams and hop hornbeams. But when I understand the bracts that are around those fruits, those bracts look more like the bracts of Coriolis. So hmm. here we have a plant in the fossil record that has a mixture of features. It has nuts that are the same size, roughly, as, a, as, as the nuts of, of hornbeams and hop hornbeams. But it has a bract structure much more like the sister genus to those other two genera, the genus Coriolis. This is what we'd expect to find in the fossil record. We find this with early seed plants. We have a whole group progynosperms. They have one feature of modern seed plants, the ability to produce secondary xylem and secondary phloem, but they're still reproducing like a pteridophyte. Mm. Seeds come later. This is what we would expect for angiosperms. There are three features that we should, with reasonable preservation, be able to try to understand in the, in the fossil record. The stamen, the carpal, and the second integument. All of those are characteristic features of angiosperms. Right. The carpal, the outer integument, and the characteristic angiosperm stamen with its four pollen sacs in two pairs. 
we wouldn't expect those all to come at once. Certainly. <laughs> we would expect those, uh, based on what we see elsewhere in the fossil record, we would expect those to arrive in some kind of sequence. It would make sense that the second integument arises before the carpal because it's inside the carpal. So it's no surprise, really, that we can find these plants that have the beginnings of that second integument in the form of a cupule. So then that leaves us with a couple of other things to explain. <laughs> you know, where is the lineage that was also modifying its pollen-producing organs mm. on the way to becoming an angiosperm stamen? Actually, Catonia is intriguing in that respect. Hmm. Catonia produces its pollen sacs in a group of four, as far as we can tell. <laughs> it produces it in a group of four, that much we know. But we don't have good enough preservation to really tell whether that group of four is two pairs uh. or four equally distributed. If it was two pairs, that would be a step on the way hmm. to creating an angiosperm stamen. So slowly, these... I'm not saying that's the situation in case sure. any. We really don't know. But in this group of angiophytes, there are probably some that are modifying the pollen organs to be kind of on en route to angiosperm. So finding those paired pollen sacs would be a, a kind of a key step forward. Um, and then the question, where does the carpal come from? Yeah. Well, it could come from the bract that is subtending the axes that uh, the cupules are born on. Wow. So it's possible that that is the explanation. But, of course, we would love to see uh, plants where there was a hint of enclosure and the orientation of the ovule is also critical. But, you know, these are all ideas that you can now take on if you buy into this initial idea. So uh, is it 100% secure? No, nothing's 100% secure <laughs> in, in, in science. <laughs> Uh, but does it provide a, a sensible launching pad for future thinking and future ideas? Sure. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, and that's what's great is, again, you were talking about generating more questions, but here's hypothesis ripe for the testing, and now you have targets to aim for. You have time periods, you have areas to look for, and the the funnest thing about paleobotany, but I'm sure as someone in the field also very frustrating at times, is you don't know what the next crack of the hammer or the next dig is going to give you. And someday it could be that curvature or a leaf that's gone that way to becoming what you would recognize. And I love that sort of finding, explaining, back to the drawing board sort of process that goes through. And it's, it's just how each field deals with it. Uh, and paleobotany has its own way. And uh, this is such a great step forward for this line of research. Yeah, and I, I do feel that um, more field work is more targeted field work. Looking for particular things is is very important. But it's also important to go back and look at museum collections. Yes. Because um, very often things are sort of put aside. You don't quite understand them. <laughs> and uh, you know, one specimen can make a big difference if it's well enough preserved. So, um, yeah. There are lots of ideas uh, still to explore. There's uh, still plenty to play for in this, uh, <laughs> in, in trying to understand uh, seed plant phylogeny. But I think um, not only this paper, but also the many contributions that other people have made, particularly, I think, over the last uh, several decades, have, have made a real difference. And it's time for, an, for a new synthesis with some new material. And that's that's what we've uh, tried to provide in this paper. Yeah, so a, a beautiful jumping off point and such a wonderful time. Really, again, when you dive in, the nuances are 
only made richer with this sort of work and, and discovery. And I mean, huge congratulations to you and your colleagues for, for making this advance. But, you know, and thinking about where it all stands right now on this, this hypothesis, this is really, truly, as it's interpreted, uh, which you said is always up for a reinterpretation, a sister group to the angiosperms, at least as it stands right now. Yeah, we have a group of plants under this hypothesis that are on the way to making the second integument. The question now is, which of those groups is most closely related to mm. uh, angiosperms? And some of that may depend, that's going to depend probably on evaluating other features that those plants display. So we need to understand the plants better. And maybe it will, we will find that in some of those groups that, that they have the right kind of arrangement of pollen sacs that are making us start to think about an angiosperm stamen, or that you're starting to get the enclosure of the, the copule by another structure that could potentially be homologous to a carpal. So those are the kinds of things that we need to be looking for in, in our new collections and, mm -hmm. in, and in previously described material. And I, I think there's... Uh, you know, it may not get solved in uh, in my time, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I think there's a real chance out there now for some targeted work focusing on these groups and uh, potentially thinking about you know how all of these features eventually coalesced into what we call an angiosperm today. Exciting, and certainly you know this is great for your group, but for people listening that may be getting into their career or are established paleobotanists that just, again, have these collections that no one's going to look for, really great sort of inspiration to start targeting this stuff. But in terms of where you're at with you and your colleagues, you know, you're in a unique position right now at Oak Springs. You've got this wonderful institution here. You've got wonderful collaborations going on. So what for you exactly is just on the horizon in terms of continuing this work, but also expanding into other realms that, you know, an opportunity like this provides with you? Yeah, I mean, I I hope that I'll always be uh, engaged in paleobotanical research. I never want to kind of give that up. I hope so too. And I have, um, <laughs> you know, I have wonderful colleagues, and uh, we still have a lot of very exciting material to write, and a lot of exciting material to look at, and papers to write. But I've always felt uh, through my career that that just doing your own research can also be seen as a little selfish, maybe, <laughs> uh, and so. You know, I've personally been interested in in what else, what other contribution could I do to, to justify the self-indulgence of being a paleobotanist? <laughs> and, um, you know, I've, I've found that outlet in the kind of leadership and administrative positions that I've taken sure. uh, through my career, first at the Field Museum and then directing Q for seven years and then as dean of the Environment School at, at Yale for seven years and now here at Oak Spring starting a new organization uh, from scratch, an organization that's focused on plants and gardens and landscapes, the things that are interesting to me, but that's also kind of unique and unusual yeah. in, in that at one end it's concerned about formal gardening and gardening <laughs> practices and the practice of gardening, but also landscape design and at the other end of the spectrum, seed saving and, uh, and growing food on the estate and planting trees and creating an arboretum and also encouraging scholarship for people who either want to study something here at Oak Spring on the landscape or in the library yeah, um, or just want a quiet place to think and write <laughs> about plants and gardens and landscapes. 
or express themselves through art in, in ways that relate to plants, gardens, and landscapes. So what we're trying to create here at the Oak Spring Garden Foundation is a, is a, is a place where people can come and, and pursue these different kinds of work and, and also interact in a community and meet different kinds of people thinking about plants and gardens in different ways. And that's, uh, you know, that's a great way to uh, wrap up my career, I think, by <laughs> trying to uh, create this new institution and um, create opportunities for, for people in the future. But I don't intend to give up the paleobotany. Sure, uh, certainly. So, uh, uh, so as usual, trying to find the balance is, is important. <laughs> Let me know how, uh, how, if you figure that out. But... <laughs> No, and, and, you know, when I first heard of you in this position and, and your background, it was a sort of head-scratch moment where I go, oh, that's a unique trajectory. Obviously, it's an interesting one and a, full of exciting challenges. But, you know, the more I thought about where you're at and what you're doing to facilitate, like you said, both gardens, art, food, community, uh, and then restoration of a landscape uh, in many ways, how, who better than a paleobotanist? You know, in terms of a complete picture and an origin story for how it all came to be, you can't ex extract plants from any part of any trajectory you look at in life on this planet. And here now you are in charge or at least trying to facilitate this whole organization that's really centered on plants. But you're coming at it with such a wonderful history of plants uh, through deep, deep time to what we get to see and experience and enjoy in the landscape today. I mean, it's got to be such a fulfilling sort of storytelling, but also appreciation of this whole process that's led us to being able to sit and have this conversation. It's, it's, it's awesome that someone such as you is in this position. Well, I think, um, you know, I, uh, from those earliest days as a kind of closet archaeologist and uh, <laughs> beginning paleontologist, I've always been interested in, in history. And uh, that expresses itself in my paleontological work. But I've, I've also, uh, I'm also very interested in the history of this land, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm quite interested in the history of institutions. And I, I, uh, I always say, if you want to understand uh, why anything is the way it is today, <laughs> whether it's a person, an institution, a plant, uh, you need to interrogate its, its history, because it, history is contingent. Yes. And, and um, so... You know, here at Oak Spring, one of the first things we were interested in doing was trying to understand the history of this land uh, a little more from the Native American presence to the early colonial presence to the transitions that occurred before, during and after uh, the Civil War and the transitions that continue uh, today, which I think are really important for thinking about the future. Right. And uh, uh, so as we think about the future of climate or the future of the land that we're on, an understanding of bringing an understanding of history to that, I think, gives you a kind of broader perspective. And uh, so we're looking forward here at the Oak Spring <laughs> Garden Foundation, but also cognizant of the history that the land brings, that we bring to thinking about the future of what an organization could look like. Well, that's fantastic. And, and it's it's exciting times. It really is. And, you know, I think there's so much that's going to be happening here and so much more potential for people to find this and be able to explore it, but also interact with everyone that's involved with this place. I mean, it's just fantastic. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about this. But briefly, I will, of course, put up all the links so people don't have to work or you have to remember any URLs. But if people want to find out more about your work or what's going on here at Oak Spring Garden Foundation, where do you recommend they go looking? Yeah, please go to our, our website, uh, osgf.org. And uh, uh, you'll find it's a very content-rich website. Indeed. But you'll also find uh, opportunities for 
um, residences and fellowships here at the Oak Spring Garden Foundation. And, and we, the closing date for the 2022 fellowships is uh, coming up in the middle of July. It's the 15th of July. So now's the time if you're mm-hmm. interested in coming to uh, <laughs> uh, Oak Spring uh, next year in 2022 uh, as a fellow or as a, as a resident, please look at the, the website, look at the opportunities and uh, send us an application. We, we're trying to build a community of people interested in plants, gardens, and landscapes here. And I hope that, that some of the folks who listen to this podcast might be interested in, in coming to see us. <laughs> I think we found a, a good target audience for that. So, But again, thank you so much for taking time for talking about this. Congratulations on this amazing work. And that goes extended to your colleagues as well that worked on this paper. But uh, yeah, thank you for uh, illuminating some really important early steps in the evolution of flowering plants. It's fascinating work. Thanks so much, Matt. Cheers. All right. Fascinating, fascinating work. I thank Peter for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us and describe all of the amazing details and implications of these fossil discoveries. It's incredible that these fossils have so much detail in them, but it's also amazing that now they're hopefully going to encourage people to go back and look at stuff that's already been described in a whole new way. I'm really excited for what new findings come out of work like this, and I just hope that further scrutiny of new and old fossils can paint a more complete picture of angiosperm development. Stay tuned over the next few days on our social media accounts. I'll be posting some interesting stuff related to sort of these fossil interpretations and structures to help you get a better idea of some of the stuff we just discussed in this. Of course, all of that can be found in the show notes for this episode. So just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast to find all of the relevant links and so much more. Once again, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has purchased a copy of my book, In Defense of Plants and Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. If you haven't yet, please consider picking it up or gifting it to a friend. There is so much in there, and you don't have to be a complete botanical nut like me to enjoy it. All you need is a slight curiosity about nature, because I think there's something in there for everyone. So once again, that is In Defense of Plants and Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. I also put a direct link to purchase the book in the show notes for every episode. Also consider picking up some customizable merch over at teespring.com slash stores slash plants or some stickers over at indefensiveplants.com slash shop. Finally, please, please, please consider supporting the show through Patreon. It's the only way I can continue podcasting each and every week. The show would be nothing if it wasn't for the support of my wonderful patrons over there. Speaking of which, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast, Karma. Karma went over to patreon.com slash plants and signed up at the producer credit level. So not only are they getting access to all of the wonderful kickbacks we have over there, including multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month, they're also getting this wonderful producer credit. Thank you, Karma. And again, thank you to everyone who is supporting us over on Patreon. But that is it for this week. Please stay tuned. So many great conversations just over the horizon, and the best way to stay on top of it all is to hit that subscribe button, and then maybe tell your friends. Otherwise, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. But until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.